Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And we're back, back again for another season of Wine School Dropout. This season is super special to me as it is an abroad season from a destination that was at the top of my bucket list. Before we get to this season though, I want to talk to you about what's going on with Wine School Dropout in general. We started this podcast bringing you episodes to give you a basic understanding of wine. Like what do vintages really mean? Why is wine priced the way it is? What makes sparkling wine sparkling? Things like that. Then we moved into introducing you to the people that work in and around the wines you drink on an international level. You really like that. So you spoke and we listened. Going forward, Wine School Dropout will stay true to its name, still schooling you, but not talking about the tasting notes and such. We'll be talking about regions, culture, food pairings, where to go for the greatest wine experiences. Sound good? Think of it as an ears on, because it's a podcast. Learning experience that you wouldn't get in a formal classroom or in school. You'll learn grapes and soil and winemakers, and also the best places to travel for wine and what to expect when you arrive. What do you think about that? Still along for the ride? Fantastic. Let's get into our newest season, season five, Wine School Dropout, Semester Abroad. We're continuing with winemaking in South Africa for this episode, but with a slight twist. I met Corlea Furi at a wine dinner and had no idea of the winemaker she was and the accolades she's received. It's always better for me this way, as I won't get nervous and go completely fangirl during the interview. The story of how she got into winemaking is heartwarming, and learning more about her role and how she does things at Bozeman Family Vineyards is, in a word, fascinating. I got the chance to spend a day learning about their vineyard and their regenerative practices, and I want to share that with you all, my audience. As there's a lot of talk about regenerative agriculture and things of that nature as it relates to what we eat and drink. Being able to see their firsthand efforts, how to work in a more sustainable and regenerative way, how they give back to their community at large. Well, let me stop talking about it and let you listen to Corlea tell you all about this in her words. First of all, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to be talking to you. Why don't you tell us who you are and what do you do? Tanisha, my name is Gorlia Furi. 
I'm a winemaker from Wellington, South Africa, a very small little town. Um, incidentally, whilst I'm speaking to you, I'm looking at Table Mountain. So, you know, people who know South Africa might know this iconic landmark. Um, so I'm close enough to the big city, but I definitely live in a very small town. And um, living the life, obviously said winemaker, I'm married to a winemaker. Um, I'm a mother, uh, a 17-year-old daughter going on to 25, obviously. Twins aged 12, one of these days. And yes, I've been in the wine industry now for the last 20 years. And in terms of the lifestyle and the life that it has afforded me, we're talking to a very happy person here. You sound happy. That was the thing that first got me when I met you. I was like, wow, she seems really happy. It was just this energy and this joy around you. And I was like, I need to talk to her a little more. I mean, uh, happiness, I think, um, found me. And um, I think when you're in nature as much as I am, and if you're in the wine industry, you know this more than I do, I think, as well, with uh, where you live and where you find yourself in the wine industry, too, is that where you are, where people are making wine, there's good food, it's beautiful, you know, it's usually um, in the most iconic places. But all these, those things obviously help a lot. They absolutely do. And I have to say, after having visited South Africa and the wineries, the vineyards, the wine farms there, like I don't have words for it. It was so much more than I ever imagined. It's so big and vast and beautiful and there are animals there and there are mountains and all of these different things. So for you to be there on a daily basis and you're like, oh no, this is just another day at work. I can't imagine what that what that is like. I'm going to be honest, um, maybe for a little bit of context, I didn't grow up in the winelands. So when you talk about how beautiful it is and you know the things that you saw here, that actually only became part of my life um, as a young, let's say almost student, as an 18-year-old. 18, 18 I visited uh, the Cape Winelands as a child quite often with my parents um, because they loved it so much. But um, to just give you a rough idea, I think maybe happiness is also linked to the fact that I am very much under the impression that I am in a beautiful place. I mean, the place that I grew up in um, was also in agriculture, but it was like maize and quite flat. <laughs> I mean, here we do have mountains. So I think it's um, that contrast, knowing just um, where I've come from. And then uh, also being able to, almost like you, as somebody from outside, as a tourist, I, I still think I see myself very much as an accidental tourist, even in our industry, even today. It's interesting you say that, because uh, sometimes I feel like that as well. I just kind of fell into this, and it all seems so new. Like, everywhere I go, I still feel like a tourist. I never feel like, oh, yeah, I know this, or oh, yeah, I know what to do. I'm always just in amazement every new region every old region every new part of an old place that I see there's just always so much to see so you didn't start in the wine industry and you came into it I think you said uh, a little later so what was your first experience with wine my first experience with wine was um, through my father um, he grew up on a small little small holding um, in the northern cape the very northern part of South Africa where it um you border Namibia. So it's very dry, very arid, beautiful, and the people are very kind. Um, but they had a little farm, and one of the little things that they grew were grapes. So um, the family has all of these stories of my grandmother being this very formidable woman. I mean, she was apparently almost two meters tall, much taller than my grandfather. 
And um, my poor grandfather was this red bearded, um, very sinewy kind of guy. And he really just worked really hard. But then she apparently had a little hat on always, always a hat. And she had um, gloves on without little uh, tips so mm-hmm. that she could help my grandfather harvest. The whole family harvested. And um, there were these stories about, you know, bringing in the harvest. And, and I mean, my grandmother in the end, she was like 90 years old and she had the most beautiful skin because even whilst working in the sun, she was always very pedantic about, you know, sunshine and things like that. But I think the whole thing about bringing in harvests, families um, doing these things together had a very big impression on my father. The small holding was too tiny for a bigger family to live off it um, sustainably. So he made the choice to go to Stellenbosch and to study there. And now since you've also seen Stellenbosch, obviously that almost intensified this love of the winelands and a different winelands than he was um, used to. But it absolutely just became so part of who he was. So as a child, even growing up, um, let's say in uh, the free state where I'm from, which was very different and, you know, very different agricultural space. Every Sunday we would have wine um, at the table and I would, I still have my little glass. I had a little glass and I was able to taste wine from a very, very young age. You know, what is this? And my dad would go on these long stories about what it was, where it came from. And um, that was his thing. Even when friends came over, you know, wine wasn't um, the beverage of choice, but he always made sure that there was wine available and that in some way that he could impart you know just how much he loved it it had a very very big influence on our family I mean for myself uh, we're four siblings all four of us ended in the wine industry in the end even although we grew up very far from the winelands so you could imagine that just that sentimental link to what our grandparents were busy with so many years ago made a very big impression so um, the long and the short uh, studied well let's go back to school, loved biology, loved science, loved maths. Um, I was um, going to study medicine. I was um, already, uh, I applied and got into a medicine school in a different town, but my dad was really upset. I think personally, he thought that my personality uh, wasn't really, you know, applicable or a good fit. And he came to me and he said, I'll pay for a ticket, just go abroad for a year and just make sure. And if you come back, and this is really what you want to do, obviously, all of their love and uh, support, um, went abroad, worked in an amazing little guest house where the, you know, the owners were fanatic about wine. I said that I would pour them wines for their wine clubs once a week. And every time, you know, listening to people talking about wine, they even had winemakers coming around. I just thought, oh my goodness, what what a wonderful thing, you know, that you, and many of the winemakers actually did speak about the science and about the, you know, the nature and the biology and all these things. And I just thought, well, this is a very interesting way of using these things that I really love. And um, I'm a little bit introverted, but I love people. And I knew that in this way, I would be able to have contact with people in a different way. And um, obviously phoned my dad from a telephone booth with one of those old telephone cards and told him that I'm coming back and I'm going to start a study wine. I think shame. He was so, so really, really happy. Um, But, you know, in the long term, he really just knew something about me, I think, that I still needed to, to learn for myself. Oh, that's a fantastic story. And also good to have the, for your dad to know you so well and for him to support you in that way to say, "Mm, I don't think you quite want to do this, but you still need to figure it out for yourself instead of him saying, no, you can't do it. 
he needed you to come into that? Let's be honest. My dad had an amazing wine cellar in the end. Um, I think he might have had, uh, you know, different ideas as well. But you're very right. It came from a beautiful place. But I'm I'm very happy that in the end, he also got the opportunity to relive uh, his love for wine through all of his children as well. Fantastic. And so you make wine and your husband makes wine as well. So you kept it in a family thing. Did that happen kind of at the same time or is that how you all met each other? How did that kind of work out? Yeah, that's how we met. Um, I'm actually quite studious. In our final year, after three years of doing your um, BSc studies, you're supposed to do a practical harvest. But they also try and get you to do a harvest at a place where you can go and learn something specific, come back and report. You know, it's part of this very big um, assignment that you need to then put for of your before your student classmates and then also obviously your, your mentors. And at the time, there was this winemaker in Wellington making a very new kind of wine, which was quite interesting in the South African perspective. It was called coffee pinotage. It was pinotage and it tasted of coffee. Um, it had very much to do with the, uh, the oaking expression whilst the pinotage was fermented in contact with uh, staves. Um, you know, in the very just after malolactic fermentation, you would open the cellar and it would be like mocha java all over. It was a huge commercial success early on. It was the birth of a new category, to be quite honest. And this was in that time which I needed to make this decision of where to harvest. So I told one of my professors that I really, really was interested in this. I wanted to know more about it. But I obviously didn't know the winemaker at that time. And then this winemaker comes to the university and he gives us you know, a wine tasting. I'm going to be honest, when he gave the tasting, he was quite a bit much. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> Listening to this guy, but obviously it comes from this space where he is so passionate about winemaking. And to be quite honest, I, I might have just not seen that before. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is quite overwhelming. I have no idea if I would be able to harvest with somebody like this. Just again, because I'm quite reserved. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, so he goes on this wonderful rant, gives us this wonderful tasting. And then in the end, my professor takes me by the hand. and He almost shoves me in front of this man. And he's like, this girl wants to come and harvest at your cellar. She's really interested. And by that time, I've already obviously thought to myself, there is no way I'm harvesting <laughs> it. But now you're in his face. What can you oh, I'm in it. Anyway, so and um, I went for an interview. And um, I started working there. And I'm going to be honest, I remember going home and my mom asking me, I mean, we were working horrendous hours. It was just nonstop pinotage, pinotage, pinotage. And um, my mom sat next to me um, whilst I was trying to just figure out where my washing was going, what was going on, it's harvest, just too much. And she's like, what's this winemaker like? Is, is he treating you well? And I said, you know what, mom, I don't like this guy, but I think I'm going to marry him. <laughs> And it, it was this strange realization that I really enjoyed um, his um, passion and his zest and his interests and all of these things. And um, at the end of that year, we were engaged. We got married in the garden of the cellar where we met. And that's been 21 years. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I love that story. Now, let's talk about what you're doing now. You are with Bosman. And yes. uh, we did a tour there for the day, and it was about regenerative agriculture. 
can you explain that to the listeners of what that is exactly and why that is a practice where you are? We've been fair trade accredited since 2009, so that's a very long time. Um, but that accreditation has everything to do with sustainability on you know, a level of business practice, of the ethical trading of wine, and then also some environmental um, aspects. So for many years, this was what we were, we were doing, and I think we thought that we were really progressive. And then we got to the realization that you know, sustainability is one thing. But sustainability talks about sustaining something in the state that it is in. Whereas when we think about climate and climate change and where we find ourselves, it's not about sustaining it anymore. It's about having to fix stuff which is broken or having to leave it in a much better state than what we find it in. Maybe the context for the Bosmans that I work for is important in that um, it's an eighth generation um, wine family. And as such, you know, they don't see themselves as landowners anymore. They see themselves as custodians. So if you think of custodianship and if you think about uh, regenerative and leaving something in a better state than you found it, you know, those things are very much linked. So when we talk about regenerative, I think the important things are about biodiversity. Uh, we love that most of our farms, actually, when you think about how much land hectareage or acreage is involved in production, then mostly we have that in terms of biodiversity and you know, just looking after our natural fainbos. So, Tanisha, you were here, you know our beautiful pratias, our natural, beautiful fauna and flora. And I mean, these things need to be preserved for the future. And they have a very important role to play in terms of making natural barriers for our vineyards to make sure that there's a biodiversity, not just, you know, in, um, we don't want to be doing monoculture things. Um, we want to have almost a biome, um, a living thing that gives us beautiful grapes. So that's the one thing. The other thing is that when we work with the carbon content of our soils, we make sure that these soils can take much more water and preserve water and use it in a better way. And we all know that water is becoming so scarce. So water stewardship is definitely also very much part of this story. And then, um, you know, the other thing is that what you put into your vineyards is actually what you drink in the end in your wine. And if we can do that in a different way, if it's not about your chemical bull or the fertilizers or the pesticides that you're putting down, but it's about having um, compost teas where you almost make kombucha for your vineyards in which your vines, roots are much more susceptible in bringing in and being able to utilize what is in the soil for it to use. I think it's just being more mindful and doing small things better every day and just maybe also tracking and tracing where we are and how we can change and better in future. The mindset has been changing for the last uh, few years because people are being more mindful of what they're putting into their bodies. And then that in turn made them be more mindful of how things are grown, produced, manufactured, that kind of thing. And so I'm glad that businesses, companies, wineries are also being more mindful of that because 
I guess in the past, we just didn't know what we were doing to the earth. We just did it. And now since we're saying like, wait a minute, that might not have been the best thing for us. So let's try to reverse that. But it seems like instead of reversing, you all are doing things the right way and coming out with things the right way so you don't have to go and um, backtrack. And we're not doing it necessarily for a certification or for notoriety. We're doing it because it's the right thing to do. There was a project that we watched with the rootstocks and then watching them do um, mat, which was absolutely fascinating to me. And I think you're at one of the leading nurseries for vine rootstocks in South Africa. Why is this something that's important? Well, I think for many years um, in South Africa, um, if you thought about vineyards, you would be driving around and you would be seeing virus infested vineyards. Um, I think a lot of people thought that those were just beautiful autumn colors, but it was actually those plants showing distressed signs of virus infection. South Africa has definitely gone on a, a very important mission of eradicating virus infections in vineyards as far as possible, really being mindful of how needing to plant clean material to give those vines the most wonderful opportunity to give us clean fruit. Um, clean sounds silly. Um, it's more, you know, if a vine is stressed while producing fruit, this fruit is stressed on an uh, analytical level, but even just in terms of how those taste and the taste profile is, is very different to a healthy plant giving you healthy grapes. So I think a lot has been done. The, the nurseries do a lot of work to make sure that when those plants are then uh, sold into industry, that they're free of known viruses. Over the years, that's been a very big force. Um, I think there were some notes where people abroad would be tasting our wines and they would have specific comments about our wines. But I think to a large extent with clean plant material that's been eradicated. The other important thing about the nurseries, I think, which is important, Tanisha, is that South Africa, even although we have a very old wine industry, right? So 1659, the very first wines made here in South Africa. If you think about the isolation era that South Africa had gone through, the fact that only after 1994, we re-entered the international wine arena, our wine industry is also quite young. In terms of what was planted here a long time ago, it was things like Shenan and Zinso. And then we were sitting here, not having that a little bit isolated, but we knew that things like Shiraz and Cabernet and Merlot were becoming quite fashionable in other parts of the world. So yes, we planted it here. But I think that there is also a case to be made that the South African viticultural landscape can still be very different and that we haven't explored fully what would do well in our country, for instance. We, we started with something uh, near Davila from Sicily. We thought that the Sicilian landscape really was very much like Wellington in terms of the generosity of the sunshine, you know, a little bit of the water scarcity. And we wanted to know how an iconic grape that did so well there could maybe do here. And we've been growing it for the last 13 years and we've had tremendous results. So I think the nursery's main focus also is to give winemakers in South Africa a clean palate and an opportunity to bring in interesting new grape varieties that they might want to use and source and um, test in South Africa, because I think we still have loads of exploration to do um, in terms of what can really be iconic for South Africa in the future. So you're like a winery and then also a research center. Yes. 
in the sense that, I mean, clearly you make wine, but then also the you have done these rootstocks that you can sell to other wineries, winemakers, to make sure that they are growing things from non-disease. Like they're starting off with a fully clean slate, no diseases, no viruses, no problems. And then also trying different things as far as what kind of grapes can be grown. You mentioned Nero Davila, and then I remember during our visit, there were so many other grapes mentioned. I was like, you all are growing that here? And that there was some French, native French grapes, native Spanish grapes, some grapes I had never even heard of because it was like, have you heard of this? What about this? And we were like, no, no, yes, yes, no, no. It's like, wow, okay. So you're doing a lot of experimentation there to see what works and what doesn't. Also, when people from abroad come and visit, like um, meeting you um, just in the last month, and because I was from South Africa, people who approached me, it was this um, something that was explored, something that was found, almost something new. So with us sitting at the university, knowing and learning that grapes have been around in South Africa for such a long time, I actually love the idea that in some way we do get the opportunity to almost reinvent ourselves, to become known for new things. And it's this new guard of young winemakers doing terrific, amazing things, putting the wine industry on, on the map. And, you know, and I think it's also a big amount of storytelling. I think uh, people and storytelling are the big things for South Africa. When people come here, I think the engagement level and the storytelling, I think, is what gets people hooked on, on what they see here. Of course, I met you and then learned so many things about you from just talking. But in regular Tanisha fashion and for the podcast, I'm like, let me just Google and see what comes up. And uh, you can make rosé from 30 varieties. Yes. And actually, I, I need to go back now that you've said that it should be 52. Oh. You know, what's the craziest thing when people read that they're like, OK, but name them all. Oh, heavens, that's a party trick that I, you know, just don't have. Because to be quite honest, if anybody needs to talk about grapes, you know, you get to five or six and then you totally go blank. But this is very much part of the nursery and the fact that we import all of the grape material from abroad. Um, it goes into a quarantine station, which our government has subcontracted to the nursery. So we're able to bring in the plants. We um, do all of the tests and make sure that, you know, it will not bring in something into our industry, which isn't supposed to be here. We clean it up. We then start um, multiplying it and then it becomes something which can be planted out. And obviously, for us to be able to harvest plant material, we need to plant it. So you can imagine we have two, uh, actually three now, three very distinct um, nursery vine gardens. And in these gardens, we plant these grapes. And we also give producers the opportunity, viticulturists, producers, people who are really just interested to come and taste the grapes so that they can get an idea. Because you don't even just have, let's say, Sauvignon Blanc. You have all of the most possible clones in between that, something which is grassy and green, something which is passion fruity, um, you know, all of those different renditions of that, that grape, you then find in a vine garden like that. And because we can't make 52 different wines, we obviously then make a rosé. We go in for multiple pickings because all of these grapes obviously don't ripen at the same time. And then we, you know, make a beautiful, fresh, moderate, you know, 11.5% alcohol, beautiful wine from that. But it's a little bit over the consumer's head. They don't know that all of that goes into that. 
But for us, it does give us the opportunity to have a product, but also have people being able to taste grapes, all of these different grapes, and make wonderful decisions on what they want to plant and why they want to plant them. But it's always um, Valentine's weekend, basically, when, uh, or, you know, that week, uh, the second week of February, when most of the grapes are quite beautiful and pretty. And then we have people come around, usually almost like uh, groups of 20, and then we walk with a walk of about five kilometers, you can taste quite a tremendous amount of things. Wow. So you walk in five kilometers in the vineyard. Can you give us an idea of just how big the property is, where it's the nursery, the vineyard, all of that? Is it together? Is that something you can kind of quantify? Well, it's not together. So it's on different plots because as a nursery, we have different clients. Some of them are for instance, um, we talk about the other side of the mountain. The other side of the mountain here in South Africa is um, in the Breda Kloof, more north. And there, different things are important to, you know, the viticultural uh, community there. Different grapes are important. So we have a, a vine garden there, which is very specific to the area. Then we have one in Hermanus, which is close to the ocean. So some people who travel will know that Hermanus is also the birthing place of the great whales here in South Africa. So people go whale watching and then they go vineyard watching. But there we have the cool climate grapes where we plant all of the things that you could imagine in regards to Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Gris, all of those Gamay interesting grape varieties. So different sites planted to different things. But then, as I said, the one in the Yemelin Arda may be the bigger one with the most inclusive uh, list of uh, grapes. But yes, um, we have four different plots in the end, as I said, different places. But it's it's large enough. I mean, it's 180 hectares in uh, the Boerflay, 100 and. 80 hectares in Harmon, which is more to the Swartland, which gives us the most beautiful places where our red grapes are, are planted. And then the Yimmel and Arda, as I said, um, some 50 hectares, but 70 hectares then also in terms of biodiversity and uh, making sure that we're looking after our most beautiful flora. And then in the Fuerbardabach, where I'm sitting today, is where our cellar is located. And um, here we've also now started planting, but also organically. So the Bosman operations, I think, are medium to large scale, but it's very much linked to just um, how important the nursery is and how much soil and land it actually takes to uh, provide a third of uh, plant material to the wine industry in South Africa. Now, we've mentioned the different rosés that you can make and the rootstocks and the nursery and the regenerative agriculture. There are a lot of things, exciting, fun, cool things happening over at Bozeman. What is uh, something that you are like super excited about or maybe the most excited about? Well, the most exciting thing for me is basically the team and the people that I work with. And really, to be honest, I've been around um, in the organization now for 16 years. It started very small. Well, small in terms of it not being the focus of the family. The nursery was always the focus. And I think the wine business was there to link everything back together, to go full circle, you know, to have um, the nursery, to grow the grapes. And then since the 50s, no wine was made by the family because they were focusing on viticulture. And then Beatrice Bosman, our MD, 
he had these beautiful, you know, sentimental stories that his grandfather told him of making wines in the 270-year-old cellar. And he really wanted to do that again. And that's where we started making wine again. But as our organization grew, it just became this beautiful place where I think we have a wonderful way of attracting wonderful talent. You would have seen much of my team, Tunisia, and it's just new wave, women winemaking team. And I think we're doing very exciting, wonderful things whilst doing life. What is something that you wish people knew about South African wine? Mm, well, I wish they knew that they could buy a South African Chenin Blanc any time of the day or night, and it'll be absolutely worth their while. You know, there's a um, few things that make me so excited, like Chenin Blanc from South Africa, and I hope that people will catch onto that trend and catch onto that knowledge quite soon. I mean, there is nothing which will give you the amount of joy in different levels of, you know, pricing. If you think about those very old vine, site-specific wines, even just to the wine which you have in your fridge, in your in your kitchen, because it's reliable and it's beautiful. Shenan is definitely one of my biggest things. And then I think the other thing which I wish people knew or just wish they could experience was the amount of collaboration that I think we do find in our industry just people working together, vineyard owners, winemakers, viticulturists, teams, people. I think, again, as I alluded to earlier, people are quite a big part of, I think, the South African, what makes things gel and fit here. I'm very appreciative of it. And I don't know if people would ever be able to feel it. Favorite food and wine pairing? One of my big loves in winter you can't see it now but all of our mountains are snow-capped and it's really in the very midst of cold cold winter we have loads of curries in South Africa a fantastic wealth of Cape Malay recipes and uh, you know just this food tradition of beautiful fragrant food so if you think of of, you know Rogan Josh or just beautiful curries Mm -hmm. um, I would like to think that oak matured barrel fermented Chenin Blanc can absolutely stand up to something like that. But on the other hand, our red blends usually also when they're, you know, we have one specifically called the Adama red blend um, with Shiraz Mubarts and so Primitivo, really um, complex and inviting. Something like that with a beautiful curry is always, you know, this time of the year, one of my favorite favorites. I think the other thing about South Africa is you can just come and keep on coming back because the diversity in all of these different places are so unique. I mean, it almost feels like if you want to go to the Swartland, you'll need to be there for a week at least. And if you go um, to the Yimmel and Arda Valley, another week so that you can go up that valley and see all of those different wards, the renditions of, you know, the different Pinot Noirs and how they just show themselves on different sites and soils. I mean, you sport for choice if you want to come and really get uh, stuck into different places here in South Africa. There is just so much to explore. Absolutely. And so um, I'm keeping that on my bucket list and on my vision board that I will be able to return and see more, do more and drink more. Well, thank you, Corlea. I appreciate tremendously you taking the time and having this conversation with me. I've learned so much. And so I know my listeners will be learning a lot and taking notes and wanting to book a ticket to South Africa as well.
Oh, please just come. Um, generosity is in our nature. We love having people around. We love having wine people around. And it was wonderful, not just to meet you in South Africa, but to um, be able to continue with this journey and this discussion with you um, online. And really looking forward to when you come again. Remember when I said I just met Corlea when I went to South Africa? To listen to that conversation, you'd think we knew each other for a little while, no? I love how organic our conversation was and how much more I was able to learn from her to share with you all. I hope you learned a bit more about South Africa and the history of their wine industry, along with the innovation that's currently happening. And if you haven't gone to your wine shop for a bottle of South African wine yet, I definitely think this is your sign to do so. To find out more information on Bozeman Wines, visit their website, bozemanwines.com, B-O-S-M-A-N-W-I-N-E-S. And for following Corlea and keeping up with her and what's going on with her, she is on Instagram at C-O-R-L-E-A-F-O-U-R-I-E. Give her a follow. Thank you for listening to Wine School Dropout. This podcast was produced by Studio Ochinta and hosted by me, Tanisha Townsend. Our executive producer is Lori Martinez. Sound design and production by Luis Lopez. Production coordination by Catalina Oyos. Our theme was done by Gabrielle DeMasso. Music is by Makai Beats. Our art is by Tiffany DeLune. Follow us at Wine School Dropout on Instagram. If you'd like the show, tell a friend about it. And leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sit back, relax, and have a glass. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.